Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. In this episode, we hear from pioneers in literacy and learning in India, Dr. Madhav Chawan and Dr. Rukmini Banerjee from the organization Pratham. Pratham is perhaps one of India's best-known non-governmental organizations. Established in 1995 by Madhav Chawan and Farida Lambe, Pratham has pioneered work on improving literacy amongst India's children. Pratham's mission is every child in school learning well. Pratham also conducts the annual ASER survey or the annual State of Education report a nationwide household survey on the state of education in rural India by capturing vital information on child enrollment and learning outcomes. Dr. Madhav Chawan was born into a political family and grew up on a commune in Maharashtra. His early influences included Lal Nishan, the Leninist party established by his father, Yashwant Chawan. Madhav Chawan went on to study chemistry at the Institute of Science in Mumbai and completed his PhD from Ohio State University. After a brief stint as a professor in America, he returned to India in 1983 and began working with Doordarshan, where he produced programs on literacy. He then worked with UNICEF and the National Literacy Mission in the informal settlements of Mumbai. All of these experiences working to improve literacy led him to co-found Pratham in 1995. Dr. Rukmini Banerjee is a CEO of Pratham. Growing up in a prolific family in Bihar, Rukmini Banerjee was a stellar student and sportswoman who studied in premier institutions that included St. Stephen's College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes scholar, and the University of Chicago, where she earned her PhD. It was in Chicago that Dr. Banerjee found herself volunteering and teaching in the city. during a vibrant and inspiring time of social leadership Dr Banerjee returned to India in 1996 and joined Pratham She has worked extensively in designing and supporting large scale partnerships with various state governments to improve learning outcomes in children For 9 years Rukmini Banerjee led research and assessment at Pratham and since 2015 she has been the organization CEO This is the first episode in a two-part series. Dr. Madhav Chawan and Dr. Rukmini Banerjee are in conversation with philanthropist Rohini Nilekani. We learn about the history of Pratham from the early influences of each of their lives and educations and about the power of volunteerism and the need for primary education as a societal mission that has to be solved at scale. This conversation was recorded at the Bangalore International Center in Bangalore. Hello welcome namaste Madhav Jawan and Rukmini Banerjee it's a honor and a pleasure to have you on this podcast thank you for joining us thank you for inviting us actually before we get to the great pratham story um let's delve a bit into both your early influences madhav let's start with you i mean tell us a bit about your background it was a very political family and for the first two decades of your life you were very involved in your father's uh, trade union movements the marxist movements tell us a bit about that well i grew up in what was uh, referred to as a commune my father was a founding member uh, which became a smallish party in maharashtra called lal nishan party he was a member of the communist party in the late 30s of the last century He, at the age of 17 18 he became a communist a candidate of the party and then he went through ups and downs uh, politically as the communist movement went through ups and downs but uh, in those days and i suppose even now the left party people don't have money didn't have money so uh, more than an ideological commitment to staying together it was more a necessity an economic necessity where there was one kitchen and several people eating So that's the kind of uh, environment that I grew up in. My house I described where I where I grew up 
was a house at night and office in the, during the day. So people were staying in the house. And a funny story, one, one story that people tell is when the food inspector came to check the ration cards, he saw weird things like the head of the family is Kamal Fatak and members of the family is Mr. Dalal, Mr. Akram Azmi, Mr. Dapta Deshmukh, Madhav Chavan. So he, they say, what kind of a family is this? So it was a family. And I saw many things happen uh, in the height of the Sanyukta Maharashtra movement, which was a big upheaval in Maharashtra. I used to get taken to in protest marches and so on, uh, in a sea of people, slogans and so on. So I'd seen it from early days. What I didn't know then was these were all stalwarts of Maharashtra politics walking in and out of the house, meetings and things going on. So protests, words like revolution, justice, social justice were not new to me. Except they didn't mean anything at that time, but it was like part of your life. And as I grew up uh, in the mid-60s, Maharashtra was again changing. Big thing that happened when I was in high school was the formation of Shiv Sena uh, and the retreat of the left movement because of the Shiv Sena politics and so on. Uh, by the time I finished my high school, uh, Shiv Sena was very strong and the Communist Party was declining. My father's work in the trade unions, I had seen it on a rise in the textile mills, in the industrial belt of Marar, Mumbai. And then I saw it go down. This was the time when my father felt that I should be joining politics, dynasty-like. Of course, he wasn't fighting elections. And I got drawn into what was a kind of a fledgling starting students' movement. So that was the early part. Then one early introduction to what people call constructive politics, as opposed to destructive politics, was when there was a big famine in Maharashtra in 73-74, part 75. And that's when we did two things I, I, as, as student leaders. We appealed to students to participate in famine relief but at the same time also started talking about famine eradication. So I participated in those things. But by 75, I felt that I was politics was not something I was going to do. Did the emergency have any impact on you? Uh, I was painting slogans on roads and I was doing things. In fact, at that time, I was, interestingly, my assignment was to edit a magazine called Our Neighbor China. So we were um, translating articles about China and agricultural revolution in the Chinese countryside. I was also translating, uh, me and a few friends of mine translated Chairman Mao Zedong's uh, works, philosophical works and so on, and political works, new democracy and so on. And these were, funnily, they were submitted to the Indian censors in Mumbai and they passed them. Because they didn't see anything subversive in that, uh, or apparently not. And we were publishing those kinds of things. Didn't affect, because again, there were all sorts of uh, variations in political stands of different political groups uh, in response to the emergency. So it did affect, but not much. I wouldn't say it affected me personally much. So in 75, I went back to college did my master's in inorganic chemistry at, at the Institute of Science in Mumbai. After that, 77, not in 75, but 77, again, I was look, looking for work and an unemployed young man. So I was selling ramen bonus stamps, the loyalty program. I, I sold all kinds of things. But then I had to do something more than that. And uh, my uncle told me, why don't you try for United States? Which had not occurred to me. At that time, if I may, there was a lady, you may have heard of her, Gail Omvit. So Gail was a participant in the Lal Nishant uh, movement. She, and, she had worked on uh, creation, formation of the women's uh, liberation 
groups in Maharashtra. And she was in and out of the commune. So my father asked her, what do you think about Madhav going to the U.S.? He was worried that I'd get into drugs and stuff. I don't know whether he was really worried. Maybe my mother pushed him to say something. So Gail told him, do you trust your son? And he said, yeah. So then don't worry. If he, if he was going to get into drugs, he would get into drugs here. He will get into drugs there. But if you trust him, so his worry was not so much drugs as getting into all kinds of capitalist habits. And then, a very, in a very unusual sounding move, a man who's grown up, uh, who had grown up in the uh, communist commune, uh, decided to apply for a visa to the United States in the heart of imperialism to go study. And that's where life started changing dramatically after 75. So what influenced you most in the education system of the United States? Uh, not so much the system. My thesis advisor and the professors around, the, the interaction with professors. So my professor uh, who was my thesis guide, if you will, or I was a part of his research group. I remember at a very critical point in my thesis, I felt that we had made an assumption and we were going by the assumption for a couple of decades. And my experiments were saying that that assumption was not true. And I was really scared to go to him and tell him that, that this is what it means. My colleague said, don't worry, you know, we are like a true Indian boy, even after three, four years in the United States. I wasn't sure that I should go and tell the boss that, you know what, there's some mistake here. But when he saw the data and all that, he said, Madhav, you saved our lives. And those were his exact words. Now, for somebody to say that, or even when I started working in the research group, he handed me the keys of the laboratory and said, go ahead, start. I said, start what? I mean, here I had barely changed spark plugs on the cars, and there they had given me a lab and a you know whole machine system that you need to work on this. I said, I don't know how to use it. He said, use manuals. And so the whole idea of trusting equipment was hundreds of thousands of dollars at that time to somebody, a complete novice who don't you don't even know. I learned a big lesson in trusting people. So what is young mother thinking at that time about his future? One thing was my father, my, my political family, if you will, were not thinking that he's going to come back and do any major political things or anything. So it was not it was not a given that I was I was going to come back, although I felt that I should go back, and I never felt seriously never felt comfortable living in the U.S. By this time I got married as well, and from what I recall, my wife and I both wanted to come back. Uh, and interestingly, this this was the time when Rajiv Gandhi was uh, prime minister, and they they appealed. Sam Petroda was a major influence. I didn't know Sam at that time, but the the idea was they wanted to appeal to uh, Indians overseas to come back, and so there was a program called Returning Scientist Scheme. If you are a scientist and you want to come back, then you can become a scientific pool officer for a princely sum of three thousand rupees a month. And I thought that wasn't a bad beginning. In the previous job I had, I, I was earning fifteen hundred now, double the salary. That was not the point. The salary was not the point. I needed an excuse to come back, and this was good. And I said, well, let me." I had done a postdoctoral fellowship in the U.S., and I wanted to come back. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind at that time, or even now thinking back, I just did want to come back. The question is, why did I want to do anything major here? No, I just wanted to come back and become a good researcher, teacher in India. Rukmini, take us on the same journey. Again, strong family influences. You too went to America. Like Madhav, you did your PhD. Long journey, Rhodes Scholar, Oxford, all that. So, but tell us about your early influences. So, my family from both sides is from Patna. So, my father's family lived in Boring Road. And my mother's family lived in Sabzibag. So, the Sabzibag people thought those Boring Road people were very modern and starts. They had arrived in Patna and were trying to establish themselves. 
and the Sabzibag people had lived in the same house since like 1817, when they must have come up the Ganga, somebody, one of the ancestors, a penniless Brahmin from some Bengal village, but probably with a little bit of education. And then if we trace back, it looks like this person made money quickly. So there's a lot of family debate about, uh, um, for example, my grandmother, who uh, was quite a personality, trying to create some zamindari background to this. The truth was there was opium business very big at that time in Bihar. And he was probably a lowly accountant in that business, but made money because the house in which the family lived grew quite a bit, quite rapidly. And uh, that's the same house that, you know, uh, we saw as kids. So, there, you know, these are the two kinds of different families. And I would say that um, uh, two grandmothers, uh, the Sabziba grandmother had never been to school. And she was, she had two daughters, my mother and my Masi. In that family, for example, women never went out to cover your hair. And, you know, there was huge uh, joint families to be fed, which all the wives of the sons did and so on. But she was convinced that her daughters would go to school at least and fought a big battle and got her daughters to go to school. I think um, my mother was probably 12. So they all, they never went to primary school. They went straight into sort of middle school. And uh, luckily for her, my mother and aunt were stellar students. So the minute they got to school, they started wearing gold medals and whatnot, which also set a very unreasonable standard for everybody who came after. That also made my grandmother extremely intolerant about anybody who came third in their class oh, or got 56% in their <laughs> marks. Like, what is this? You know, <laughs> so that's one side. And on the other side, my other grandmother, that family had been a mag migrant family. My grandfather on that side grew up in Odisha, moved, you know, it was then the Bengal presidency. So they moved. He was a professor. And my grandmother on that side also ran a big family. But uh, two things about her. One is she was offered a Congress ticket in the first elections. And she said to the Congress party in uh, Bihar, I'm too busy to get into all this because she set up, for example, the first uh, abandoned women's shelter in, in, but you know, a lot of social activity of that type. And also at age 45, learned to ride a cycle, which caused a lot of waves in the city. One small story, I think um, my grandfather, my, my nana was a criminal lawyer. They were actually a whole family of lawyers. They began to be called lawyers more recently before they were called pleaders and something or the other. But one of the conscious decisions taken after the opium accountant was that they would not work for the British. So nobody ever had a employment. They all, and they were very proud of that. Whereas on my father's family, they were all employed people, salaried people. So this was a, a difference. So my criminal lawyer grandfather in the 60s, I mean, even today, probably criminal lawyers can do quite well in certain parts of the country. And at the time, one of my grandfather's uh, clients, probably a lucrative client, was a businessman in inverted commas. But it was well known that he was a decoit. And so in order to protect whatever was my grandfather's share of the property, apparently some eight, ten men were placed in the house for some extended period of time. And according to my grandmother, she had to feed them and they ate huge amounts and they had nothing to do. So they sat on the terrace and put tail and did malish and did kasrat. And apparently the other thing they did was they played with me. So apparently a lot of things in my personality have come from this very early experience. And we know that this was true because years afterwards, there were weapons in the house, you know, bhala and churas and things like that, which those guys left behind. That So grandmother in her 80s lived alone in this gigantic big house. And if somebody tell, told her, aren't you worried? She said, no, no, Mere ke niche chura hai. If somebody comes to attack me. She was on a walker, took her 15 minutes to go to the bathroom, but she was completely confident if she was attacked, she would murder that person with her chura. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I'm glad that was not put to the test. And then your parents. My father's name is Sujit Mukherjee and my mother is Minakshi. And then uh, he actually stayed in Patna, worked in Patna for a few years and then uh, came to Pune University, where my mother taught in Ferguson College and did her PhD in Pune University. And uh, her work, my, both my parents actually, academic work, apparently is very well regarded. My mother wrote some one of the first uh, kind of critical analysis of Indians writing in English. 
so she's still seen as a you know a, a kind of a pioneer in that my father's phd was on the reception of rabindranath tagore in america and so he had an interest in uh, i mean he also was an english professor but he did a lot of work on translations and how two cultures can you know understand each other through their literary writings talk about your educational journey a bit and then again what made you come back so i went to a, a you know a so called convent school only because it was very difficult to get admission anywhere else and this particular convent school had a big headquarters in patna so you could call mother somebody or the other and say ki mere bacche ko admission dila do so that's how i went to the school uh, i always liked sports and college the big thing was the college i went to we were the third uh, cohort of women so there was a suddenly from a very girls school with very limited and kind of a very not a very fancy school this is st stephens yeah so went to st stephens where at least sports was a big platform and lot of encouragement for any women who wanted to play any sport which i did with full i i i played and so going to oxford was actually an extension of this because a road scholarship looks for so called all rounders yeah as long as your you know academics is sort of okay my when i applied for the road scholarship my extracurriculars i played tennis Ten- and swimming at the university level oh. uh, and yeah academics was you know okay uh but once i arrived in oxford then there was a whole other set of extracurricular opportunities that opened up so this this is all a kind of a you know i think the fact that there's lots of other things to do than study was ingrained in us quite early any moment you can think of that ties back to where we are today any moment at oxford or uh, chicago I thought the education systems both in uh, I mean in India we were when I left I was I did a year of MA we had 250 people in our class you know you could have chai walas come in and out and nobody noticed so going from that to oxford where you had one on one tutorials with famous professors was like a, it was very difficult oxford i had a good scholarship it's a, you know it was a, you were in a, you know you were clearly elite but when you in america when you went to graduate school you had to work to support yourself you had to do four whatever tough courses and i think that there was it was a much more competitive environment and i th- i feel that i was very lucky in the university of chicago i had very good advisors very different but very good and how in that competitive environment people could still pay you personal attention and draw out from you things that you know you uh, that you didn't know you had and what did you study there you moved beyond economics yeah i didn't want to do economics i wanted to i actually didn't want to go to graduate school but i went because my then husband you know had gone there and you know it sort of made sense to go i deferred admission for a whole year and i worked as a volunteer in our local ywca which was the ywca child care center actually i was very fresh in america and it was the closest to my house where i could volunteer in the winter so i didn't have to walk, walk more than two blocks and that's why i picked it but i learned a lot about america from that experience this was completely a different america from what i had seen in movies and other things the mothers of the children we took care of were sometimes 16 years old their grandmothers i was at the time 23 24 you sometimes had grandmothers who were not that much older no fathers in the picture all kinds of things and very soon i became their longest running staff member and it was almost very difficult to they couldn't pay me because you know of whatever your visa but i got a real flavor of early childhood family community and what not from that one experience and then actually when i went to graduate school i went to the university of chicago and at the time the south the hyde park harold washington was the mayor carol mosley brown was the uh, senator she was the first black, black. woman senator her, by a couple of years later her kids and my kids went to the same daycare in hyde park down the street was um, brotherhood of islam mm. uh, then uh, jesse jackson's operation push so it was a very vibrant very political environment so three things i think around that time locally in chicago influenced me a lot one was that we obviously as indian living in america couldn't vote but i could vote in my local school elections so they had a real democratization of local school governance and we were you know part of that you could vote your local school was a very important a local platform on which people fought 
The second was I always felt my PhD was very quantitative and I used data from India, but India was very far away. I didn't have money to go back and forth. I had small children, blah, blah, blah. So I volunteered in a school further south. Um, again, you know, a couple of blocks so you could walk easily, which was my first exposure to what inner city schools are like. And I was a volunteer there for four years. I always went at lunchtime three times a week. And all this thing that school did not know how to use a volunteer. And when they heard what my education was, they were like, what are we going to have you do? And over a period of time, I was the seventh grade language composition teacher, actually writing teacher. And that was, I think, a very formative experience because it made me think about what similar kids would be like in India. And a third was that to earn money as a graduate student, uh, the University of Chicago's education school was coming up with a new math curriculum. It's called UCSMP. It's still used a lot in the US, University of Chicago School Math Project. So how that math curriculum was developed, how much hands-on work had to happen. You had fleets of graduate students trying out every single thing in local schools. So these local experiences of how, you know, how education is organized, how it is governed, what goes into the content. I mean, and now I piece it together. But I think these were, and also I think as neighborhoods, what a school meant in a neighborhood, how community, like we had a park in the, in our, uh, in our neighborhood. The park was actually constructed by, you know, whatever, Janseva in a way. And these were things which seemed to happen very naturally. Somebody is sick, you know, three streets down. Somebody calls you and says, can you deliver dinner to their house on such and such a day? So the power of sort of community, organized community and not through a church or not through a kith or kin. And it was a very mixed neighborhood, but there was a very strong um, black culture, which was permeating some of this while you have an ivory tower of the university there. But I all constantly had this thing about this volunteering was a bit of saying I need to feel I'm part of some ground level thing. Probably if I had stayed on in the US, I would have been part of some of that. But uh, I grew up in a large family on both sides where lots of family members played a big role in my growing up. And I certainly wanted my children to have that. So I was very keen to come back and I was a bit worried that I didn't know why I really wanted to come back other than comfort of family or of, you know, things that I know. And when the chance to come back happened, which was uh, because my <coughs> then husband was a, he was in the corporate sector and they were opening up. We came back to Bombay, which was like a totally foreign country to me. In Bombay, I knew less about Bombay than I knew about, you know, New York probably. Uh, and so there, how do you start connecting? And I, I, not that anybody said it to me, but I felt I had a little bit of a gun to my head, uh, especially from my uh, husband. As to, you really wanted to come back to India now? What? <laughs> so it was fortuitous that I found Pratham quickly and got involved because otherwise I would have been just hanging on wondering what it is that I'm doing here. <laughs> so how did you discover Pratham and how did you decide to join it? So when I came to Bombay, the, what I really wanted to do was to be part of the Bombay Municipal Corporation's research department. Influenced by Chicago, which had a hundred people in the research division within their public schools. I went to meet the whoever it was. There was one person. She was totally freaked out. She said, Aap Dilli chale jao. Dilli mein aise foreign ke log aake karte At that time, I had heard about Pratham from somewhere. I'd seen one newsletter. So I wrote, I actually wrote a letter to YB Chawan Center, which presumably they got. Because then Madhav met me based on whatever the letter I had written. Do you remember the date? Sometime in August of 1996. And he said, uh, okay, so come to this meeting tomorrow in somewhere. I'll meet you in Dadar TT. So that's how I joined. And I was very skeptical because I didn't know what all this was. My goal was how do you work with the school system? And uh, I always say that I went to that meeting and then I went to more meetings and then I did some work. So I was never hired which means I can also never be fired. Simple. Why did you not hire her? We had no money. Yeah. We couldn't afford her. No, but PhD you, from you University of Chicago. Someone like that with those credentials, right? I just invited her and said, start. Here, Madhav Chawan speaks about the events that led up to the formation of Pratham. 
so that really brings us now to pratham one of the largest and most well known and i would dare say even one of the most loved ngos in the whole world how does it happen at all mother so i came back in 86 yes and i had no intentions of doing any of this it so happened that in 1988 there was a university teacher strike by when i was a faculty uh, i don't know what i was a reader in chemistry at the university of mumbai um and then suddenly as soon as i joined almost within a few months the whole country university teachers college teachers were on strike and strike was in my blood so i said we have to go and the institution went on strike it stayed on strike for 16 days one day at a time one day at a time and so there was a, a lot of uh, uh what shall we say conflict there about we got this guy because he was a uh, good chemist and all that and now he is uh, indulging in all these antisocial activities so at that time with the strike prolonged and eventually it went on for some 50 days or something which was ridiculous i mean i i understood what the strike was for but to go on for such a long time on what the the strike was struck well we continue to remain on strike because a couple of demands of the university teachers were not met most of it was done but is what was the demand that were not met the uni- the the government wanted university teachers to sign a muster when they came to work and university teachers said we are too good for that we we won't do such a thing and whether arrears are to be paid some something like that so at that time i wrote a letter in the, to rajiv gandhi uh saying that you know, two things one is that this is ridiculous and there are better things to do in education than for both government and university teachers to keep on fighting about trivial things um, uh, important as they may be uh, that's one thing and the second i pointed out this was 1988 i pointed out that uh, and this was an influence of the lal nishan party on me saying that the political winds are blowing very differently vp singh was already up there and this whole thing the middle classes of india going against you will not be good for your politics was basically something like that and the letter was delivered to uh, the prime minister then prime minister the rajiv gandhi read the letter and put some remarks on it and passed it on to uh, the secretary of education uh, saying whatever i i never got to see the remarks anil bordia was the secretary of education he was a interesting man Uh, with a vision with a good background and so on and and i i when i met uh, anil bordia i knew he was looking for that and he didn't get it so he wrote me saying why don't you if you are in delhi come meet me and i said i don't ever come to delhi so he wrote me an invitation letter saying we'll give you a ticket to travel to delhi air ticket and that too nobody had given me an air ticket before that so i went to meet him and some things happened so two a year or so it went on back and forth kya karna chahte ho agar so by this time uh, sam petroda and uh, rajiv gandhi had already launched the nine missions technology missions which included the oil mission the water mission and uh, and, and literacy mission among them so he i didn't know any of this so mr bordia asked me so what what are you doing about literacy all this is fine politics and all that i said what literacy he said what do you mean you talk about revolution social justice print pamphlets put up posters and you're not bothered that 65% of the people for whom you do this can't even read it now i was also looking for some things to do a direction to my life intellectually speaking other than chemistry and that night literally that night was the pivot and i said okay i'll do something he said what will you do i said i have many friends in different uh social movements uh, writing movement food movement women's movement science movement uh, lots of movements at that time and so i said fundamental to their work is literacy if people are not literate none of these things will work so why don't i bring them together and you address them and let's see what they will do and we can create a committee of resource organizations that is coro 
which is the coro organization that is now growing yeah so i set that up at that time yeah and so that's how the first my first involvement in social sector literacy education began uh, 89 and then i took off because on the one hand i was doing i was trying to do chemistry i had got a proposal in it was approved and got stuck in bureaucratic delays so my i was teaching but there was no research going on and the literacy thing that happened going into slums of mumbai i had been to slums of mumbai before in my previous avatars but not quite this way going into people's homes and talking to uh, women and saying you need to learn to read and so on and they used to ask me what what's in it for us why should we learn and i thought this was a no brainer why is this woman asking me why should i learn to read they actually their question was what is in it for you why are you doing this and this, the usual thing was a bus ka number dikhega ye karega wo karega but that that was not enough that was not enough but at that time the main thing that happened and i i felt that when i was talking to them on the level look i said there's no this was the literacy mission we are not going to pay anybody no payment you want to do this and this was the message that transformed again in the, as a part of the literacy mission that <clears throat> governments can't make people literate people have to make themselves literate padhna likhna sikho mehnat karne walo and all that and that was the message that i i believed in and when i was talking to young people in the slums they could see that i meant it there's there's no money in it when i come they what they were used to was people coming and saying i'll give you this i'll give you that i said there's nothing in it it's your mothers your sisters you want to teach them be my guest and i felt that this kind of a relationship and again this is where the trust factor comes in that i trust you to do the right thing and a lot of people from that yeah, that time have stayed with me all my life as workers in education literacy and so on and they've gone on to do other things you can see that that influence of what i did in the late 80s early 90s and so on i learned important lessons then which have again stayed with me so for example i got into radio programs uh, i'd never done anything on radio programs but uh, medha kulkarni uh, of all india radio she found that i was doing something in literacy and she called me once and she said will you write a script for radio program on literacy have you ever written a script i said never written a script so why don't you try so i wrote it and they produced a program and then that led to a longer cooperation and she became a volunteer for the literacy mission in fact she got a number of slum dwelling young people who had not graduated who were not even high school passed to work as program assistants in all india radio and the director of all india radio at that time uh gave a concession saying that these the people they not need not be educated there was some requirement that you have to be a graduate to become a program assistant might be important to remind younger listeners that at that time there was no television there were no mobile phones there was no internet and radio was an extraordinarily powerful media communications device both for people to talk to each other and for the government to talk to the citizens while this was going on i met vijaya joglekar dhumale who was a assistant station director at television in mumbai her husband had come for some program he said why don't you talk to my wife and you can do something a public service message and she again said the same thing can you write a script we can do a series and for next one and a half year we did a fortnightly or weekly uh, program on adult literacy and that was in those days since you are reminding listeners what was the days like so there used to be uh, socially relevant programs in the afternoon and chitrahar and all that in the evening and then uh, what uh, prime time news uh, so our program was actually between marathi prime time and the hindi prime time news this was doordarshan and across india no other television station produced literacy shows and this is recorded in some government of india but nobody did that because nobody went in and created volunteers out of people and that happened later on everywhere everywhere 
people became key people became volunteers they they did it themselves and my language always was do it yourself you are you have been a victim of that do it for yourself do it because you want to do it not because i'm saying so and people move and do things on their own so there's a very clear power of the intent and there's a very clear sense that the agency is yours to pick up absolutely so that's how my first foray into literacy education started and then again 1991 the economic crisis in india there were other things that happened in mumbai as far as i was concerned the literacy went movement went down downhill after that 91 uh to the extent that there was the economic crisis how it hits is uh, the tapes of the akshardhara program that we had produced in uh, all india radio uh, on the television doordarshan mumbai they were reused and so none are available today yeah yeah they has to re-record on top of the because they didn't have enough funds to get new ones anyway so that went downhill and again i was wondering now what am i going to do and at that time again 1991 in thailand there was a international conference on literacy and and primary education and the unicef team came back in mumbai and and delhi also and they started thinking about how to uh, give a big boost to primary education and the line was primary education is the best investment a country can make and then there were those studies from gd uh, asian development bank and so on saying that national gdp is related to the numbers of years of education and so on so that's how it's so the unicef people started talking about a societal mission that is required for primary education this is and then we started creating it afterwards saying education is too important to be left to government alone and that was the that was the sense that the unicef uh, people were uh, they were talking about and this is when i got into the discussion sort of peripherally uh my colleague farida lambe she was as a professor of uh, social work so farida lambe who was a who was a faculty of social work at the nirmala niketan college of social work she was already we had started working together on the literacy campaign and so she shared the frustration with whatever was going on but she was in the discussions with unicef on this primary education thing so she wanted me to get involved but these discussions were going nowhere nearly for a year year and a half there were discussions and workshops and the fundamental problem there was a there was a problem and and the problem then as it was seen was children are not going to school or they are dropping out of school and question was how do you solve this problem can you solve it in the UNICEF people were talking about making a model out of Mumbai because there were all sorts of complications and all sorts of resources in Mumbai and we couldn't we, we should try and do it here so eventually it came down to Mr Sharad Kale who recently passed away who was the municipal commissioner of Mumbai at that time he called a meeting or UNICEF sort of pushed him to call a meeting in his office and this was discussed and it was decided that there would be an organization for this for this primary education which would have trustees from different walks of life government okay. servants bureaucrats socially minded individuals business people um, activists or whatever and then it had to be called something so i did the legwork for that organization which is like i had done for the literacy campaign so the organization was created and they said what do you call it i said pratham and this what is this year This is ninety four, December nineteen ninety four, yeah, and so so it was called Pratham Mumbai Education Pratham Initiative. Pratham, Pratham was born, and that's where now from there on, again everything that I'd learned in my and and this you know if you go to social entrepreneurs the theory of social entrepreneurs, then there's a sigmoidal curve. There's a takeoff stage where you learn a lot, then you go up, uh, vertically sharp. and then plateau out so 
I had learned many things in my literacy campaign, like I, the lessons that I was talking about. And so, no, scale was not a problem because we were talking about National Literacy Mission making India literate in 10 years. Prar Shiksha Karikram ya Rastriya Saksharta Mission ke teen mukhya uddeshya hain. Pahla, Saksharta. Dusra, Samajik Chetna ka vikas. Tisra, Karyatmakta. So, naturally, you are not talking about teaching 100 people. You are talking about hundreds of thousands of people. 1995, So, if you wanted to do something for education, again, when, when Pratham, the goal in Pratham was to bring all children into school in Mumbai. Mumbai, no big deal. But for all other NGOs, the NGOs that were working and had not been touched by this national mission, and for people in general, scale was a scary thing. And, and, and the argument was, Gandhiji said, small is beautiful. And that argument was thrown at me every now and then. Why are you doing this? This is government's work. Why are you doing it? From different angles. Education is government's work. Why are you doing it? Why are you bailing out the government? Are you bailing out care? So the, all sorts of thoughts started emerging out of that. And so the scale was already decided when we created Pratham. The scale of for Mumbai was created. We were not thinking of anything outside of Mumbai, as you know. Uh, and and it started moving. No, it's very important to just recap some of these things because today, even today, civil society really grapples with these things. One is this idea was seeded by an international agency in some sense and it was aligned to what was already happening. But this idea was born in scale because even the national uh, literacy mission was already born at scale. And this in some sense was an imagination of scale because it was responding at the scale of the problem. And then it is the state government or the, yes. the municipal government actually, the third tier government that actually picks up the cudgels on this and puts together this multi-sectoral team to do it. And then of course something else happens. There is a very important thing to remember. NGOs don't work on scale. Correct. Okay. NGOs don't work with governments. Correct. So, so they're supposed to be on their own. We create a model and the government has to take up the model and do whatever they want to do. One is, today, if you are going to think of a scale, and, and, and many organizations say, you know, okay, you are a social entrepreneur, think scale. But to think on that kind of a scale, what we had was a team of people who represented Mumbai. There's a government representative. So we're trying to get the buy. Not that it was successful, but the design was that it's not an individual's dream. This is not Madhav Chavan's dream to do anything. No, this is a societal dream. It has to be seen as such. It has to be sold as such. That is the first part. The second part is, and this is something that a lot of people miss, including ourselves, that 94, when this was done, December 94, was a very interesting time. There's political turmoil all over, A, and economic liberalization. And industrialists, business people, everybody was very conscious of where we were going to go or wanted to go. And when you talked about primary education and the need for primary education, which happened in a, in a you know a half a decade later, but all the leadership, industrial business leadership was conscious that education is important. And I used to say in those days that earlier education was a matter of social justice. Now it was not only social justice, it was also about economic development. No, but you're right to again call that out, that Pratham's movement takes off just when liberalization is taking off and the education of the future workforce, the skilling, the capacity building, the foundational, uh, suddenly bazaar, the market was interested in participating yeah. because they could see what's going to happen to the economy. And of course, the Sarkar had a mandate anyway, uh, which it had perhaps neglected since independence and had now come to face to face with the importance of having to catch up and do it. So something was aligning in 1994. Yeah. Um, there are many things. The interesting thing is how things have seemed to happen in ones and twos. In 97, 98, I think 97, all of a sudden out of the blue, and you know, we think NGOs and the 
सिविल सोसाइटी इज रियली ग्रेट बट समटाइम्स नॉट समटाइम्स वेरी ऑफन समथिंग हैपन्स विद इन द गवर्नमेंट इज वन पर्सन इन दैट गवर्नमेंट वो एक्चुअली सेंड आउट अ स्पार्क The Rajya Sabha Secretariat came up with a amendment bill to the Constitution. So this 83rd Amendment Bill, bill for the amendment of the Constitution to make education a fundamental right, a free and compulsory, but fundamental right. Mm. Amending the Constitution right. to make it free and compulsory came out of nowhere. So we thought of picking that up and saying, let's support the Rajya Sabha Secretariat. And I, I dare think, I mean, you can have the resources to research it. but pratham was the first one to start an uh, email campaign in support of a government proposal so we started a uh, an email campaign and the server which was downloading all the emails we had to download emails because otherwise it would overflow the server was based in north carolina a cousin or friend or whoever was handling that and he was uh, having sleepless nights because the server would overflow oh. and overflow with what for, for 44000 or 50000 emails at night or something like that and we were struck because we always said was support the government in this move and it will be a, a dramatic change in the constitution etc etc and i remember getting emails coming out of stockholm and tokyo and and delhi and chennai and all that and we printed all those things heaps of printed emails because you know how do you there's there's no whatsapp there's no forwards so that was given to the rajya sabha secretariat and there were people who were impressed that this was actually something that a voluntary organization did so it was not as though we were doing everything there were many people and, and, and my radio program experience my television experience said that there were these people in the government who were conscious of uh, wanting to do something and that led to many so it, it you cannot take credit for everything you are a part of the change and 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 as things change you are nudging it along sometimes it hits you back sometimes you succeed stay tuned for our next episode and second part of this conversation between dr madhav chawan dr rukmini banerji and rohini nalekni Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekanifilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp_foundation. Thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.